And just as a mother would be committed to the health and growth of her own child, Paul was totally committed to seeing these new believers grow to become more like Christ. Generally, the people who have had the biggest impact on us are those who have reached out to us. They haven't waited for us to come to them. They have pursued us actively, not with any expectation, but just to love us and care for us. Those are the ones who have had the significant impact. In fact, they have almost earned the right to have spiritual impact and input in our lives. Because it's true, people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Is that true? I am not against truth. Don't misunderstand me. I am all for the truth. That's why I teach in a seminary. I'm all for truth. But what always goes hand in hand with truth? Grace and love. And my fear, I grew up sitting under Dr. MacArthur's teaching all my life. I was all about truth, all about knowing truth and proclaiming truth. But what was I not so excited about? Letting that truth change who I was in the way that I interacted with others. And so oftentimes what would happen is my idea of imparting in a relationship was, let me tell you what you need to know and what you need to do. (laughs) That ever happened to you? Uh, Thank you for that little mini sermonette. How much do I owe you for that? Is the truth that we know, is it changing our life? And when we share truth with others, what's your goal? To show them how smart you are, how well studied you are, how many verses you've memorized? To show them how intelligent you are, how together you have it? We are a Bible church, right? Or is it to help them see the glories of what Jesus Christ did on the cross? To share what Jesus has done in your life, how he's revolutionized your marriage, how he's changed the way that you interact with people at work. This was the kind of relationship that Paul had. It wasn't just about truth. It was truth in the context of relationship, in a changing life. True love for those we disciple should drive us to sacrifice on their behalf because of the love of Christ as we work, as we minister, as we go to school, as we see our neighbors and our friends and our family. Would they be able to tell us the many ways that we've served and impacted them? After all, Christ didn't merely teach the disciples truth. He lived it in their presence. Christ didn't merely talk about his love for others. What did he do? He demonstrated it where? On the cross for unrighteous sinners. So let me ask you, what kind of relationships have you developed with other believers? If I was to bring three of your closest friends and we were to give them a mic and give them an opportunity to talk about what their relationship is with you, what would they say about you? Would they say being your friend makes them want to love Jesus Christ more? Because you are so impacted by the truth that you know and love and hear every Sunday that it's changing you. This is one of the most important things I've ever learned about discipleship. Discipleship, the way that I impact others, will always be a direct overflow of my own love relationship with Jesus Christ. Isn't there a reason there's a first greatest commandment before there's a second? What's the first greatest commandment? 
I'm sorry, you didn't say that with conviction. What is the first greatest commandment? When it's convenient, right? When it fits in with your schedule. How do we love them? With everything. How often do we jump over that to get to the part about loving and helping others? And how does that normally work? Does it work well? Loving people, serving people in your own strength? Apart from the love of Christ? No. Because usually it just becomes a reflection of your own pride. My own pride. But when we are loving Jesus with everything, with a passion, you can't help it. It's going to come out. You're going to be, it's like out of your pores. The love for Christ. You're going to go to work. You can't help but talk about this Jesus that saved you from sin and the hell that we just so vividly heard about this morning. Discipleship will happen. You don't even mean for it to happen. But because your love for Christ is so vibrant and passionate, it's going to come out. This is what impartation is all about. Loving Jesus with everything and then establishing relationships with others. Having an intentional spiritual friendship with others so that as we spend time together, they see it in my life, they hear it from my lips, And just being my friend encourages them and helps them to pursue and love Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question, Christian. How many of those kind of relationships do you have? They don't happen overnight. How many of these kind of relationships are developing? The foundation for discipleship is impartation through relationship. We have to develop these kind of relationships with one another. Impartation. But there's a second element. Instruction. As we are developing this spiritual friendship with other believers, secondly, we see instruction. And of course, turn with me to Matthew 28. The Great Commission. Instruction. Matthew 28 I know you know this verse. You've probably been taught this verse. This is a great passage. In fact, there's a whole other sermon just on this verse about what it says about disciple-making. Pastor Hernandez will be teaching that soon, I'm sure. Jesus calls the disciples to make disciples. And then in verse 20, notice what he says. Teaching them to what? To what? To observe what? All that I've commanded you. What does it mean to teach with the purpose of helping them to observe? I was a police officer in Los Angeles for four years before I moved to Texas and then eventually to Albania. Worked for the LAPD for four years. Uh, It was kind of cool. Got to carry a gun and drive really fast. Why not be a cop, right? One of the things that we would do is write speeding tickets. Uh, they have these things on the side of the highway and the side of the roads. They're called speed limit signs. You ever seen those? What's the purpose of a speed limit sign? Not. <laughs> to tell you what, how fast to go, right? Now, if you observe that speed limit sign as you're doing 90 miles an hour past it, have you observed the sign? Yes and no. You've seen it. But have you really observed it? 
No. When Christ is saying, teach them to observe all that I've commanded, he's saying, teach them so that they will understand it for the sake of obedience. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's really what he's saying here. What is the goal of instruction? Lots of truth. Lots of Bible memorization. Lots of knowledge. What does Paul say happens with just knowledge? When all we have is filled minds of knowledge? Comes puffed up and becomes what? Arrogance and pride. Because it's missing what? Love. The goal of instruction is not just knowing truth. In fact, this is one of the things we really struggle with with these pastors. Because we can fill their minds with all kinds of theology and doctrine and truth. But if we don't help them understand how to apply that in their, in their life, by reminding them of the cross, reminding them of the gospel, what happens to that seminary student who's a pastor in Albania? They become puffed up and arrogant. And then when they go back to their churches, what kind of Christians are they now training? A whole church full of puffed up, knowledge-based, prideful people. Have you ever experienced this before? I have. In fact, sadly, I look back at my life, I was the first in line. God's word must be faithfully passed on to each generation. 2 Timothy 2.2 New converts must be faithfully nurtured in the full counsel of God's word. And of course, after conversion takes place, teaching is to be a continuous process. But again, what is the goal of instruction? Teach so that they might what? Obey. Is that easy to do? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time applying the truth that I know. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I just, I, I don't need another sermon. I'm still working on last week's. I'm still trying to figure out how to put this in, into a application of my own life. Do you ever struggle with that sometimes? That's what Christ is saying here. Now, if we were to go through the New Testament, we would see that both Jesus and Paul's instruction cover two basic topics. Two basic topics. Doctrine which is simply a big word that means what you know, what you know about God and what he expects of us, who we are in light of this is who God is, this is who I am. So because that's God, this is how I should live, how I should respond. Doctrine. But then secondly, they also cover character. Character. Who you are, what you do. Character, it's been said, is who you are when no one's around. This is why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, Timothy, pay close attention to yourself, your character, and to your teaching. Because obviously what Timothy is teaching comes from what? His belief. Pay close attention to your doctrine and your character. Did Jesus do this? Yeah. Did he teach the disciples about humility? Did he? Yeah, he said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And then the disciples are sitting around a table, waiting for someone to wash their feet. And what does Jesus do? He gets up and performs the lowliest of lowliest of duties. Because it wasn't enough for Jesus just to teach, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He modeled it for him. It wasn't enough just to know the right thing. Christ lived it. This is a huge part, I think, of what's lacking in a lot of discipleship programs. 
It's very heavy on truth, very heavy on what we know, what we know, what we know. But sometimes the grace is missing and sometimes the application aspect is missing. And so even from the Great Commission, we see that it's not just enough to know. That's why the prophet Ezra, in Ezra 7.10, he studied. And before he went and taught it to the people, what did he do? He applied it in his own life. So instruction that helps people become spiritually mature focuses on three basic areas. When we're talking about doctrine and character, there's three basic areas. Your biblical principles, what we need to know, your character qualities, what we need to do, and your spiritual, or excuse me, what we need to be, and then thirdly, your spiritual disciplines, what we need to do. Your biblical principles, does the word of God say anything about speaking truth and lying? What does it say? Lying is bad, so speak the truth in love, right? Paul told the Ephesians that. That's a biblical principle. What is the character quality that would go along with that biblical principle? Help me out here. If the Bible says speak the truth in love, then what should my character look like? I should have a reputation of one who what? Speaks the truth. How? With grace and love, right? So that's the doctrine, what I know. That is the character, the kind of man that I need to be. What is the spiritual discipline that goes with that? I like to lie. And I don't lie like full lies. I tell those little half lies. You know what I'm talking about? We, what do we call those? White lies. A white lie is just a lie, isn't it? Because if there's any ounce of untruth, what is it? Not true. Therefore it is, man, that sounded like math. A plus B equals C. It is a lie. So if I shade the truth or tell the story from a different perspective, when I was a cop, sometimes I would do something and then I'd think, oh, wow, was I supposed to do that? Maybe I'm going to get in trouble. And then my sergeant would come up to me and say, hey, what did you do? My first thought was, I probably shouldn't tell it exactly how it happened because I might get in trouble. What is that? A lie. And I am sworn to protect and serve and tell the truth. Right? So what is the spiritual discipline? Well, what did Paul tell the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, 22? 20, 22? To what? Put off what? Sin and replace it with the righteousness of Christ. So the spiritual discipline would go something like this. Okay, if I have a habit of lying, what do I do? Hide God's word in my heart. Begin to memorize scripture that talks about speaking the truth. I begin to have the spiritual discipline, and maybe I'm working with someone who struggles with this. And so I'm helping him or her you know, ladies, if you're discipling a, a younger woman, men, you're discipling a guy. You're helping them understand what, how God's word fits into how they can tell the truth today and tomorrow and the next day. And what do they do when they do lie? That's the spiritual discipline aspect of helping them put off the sin. And is it enough just to put off? No. You have to replace it with something. That's why Paul says, put off sin and replace it with what? The righteousness of Christ. And so that's the spiritual discipline aspect. So really the primary goal of discipleship is, is to help people establish some of these godly habits in their life that will then help them to grow, to become, as they grow in their maturity, less dependent on you and more dependent on who? The Lord. It's just kind of like parenting. When my kids are young, I'm making all of their decisions. But as they grow into their teens and in high school and, and eventually to college, what happens? 
They become less dependent on mom and dad, and hopefully if I'm doing my job right, they become more dependent on who? The Lord, because I'm pointing them to Christ. And it's the same thing in a discipleship relationship. You may have a very young believer who doesn't know what to do. I don't know how to love Jesus. I don't even know what that looks like in my work environment. I go to work tomorrow. I don't even know what that looks like. He's going to be, or she is going to be totally dependent on you in the beginning of that relationship. But over time, as you model the word and teach them the word and with grace and love, they become more and more dependent on the Lord. So the primary goal is to help them with these godly habits. Well, what are some of those godly habits? Maybe to help them have a quiet time. To pursue personal holiness through their own private time with God. Spending time in the Word, memorizing Scripture, prayer, their own worship time with the Lord. Maybe it's corporate worship and fellowship. Have you ever seen someone come to faith in Christ and, ha- and tried to explain to them the importance of the church? Why is church important? They've never gone to church. In Albania, this is a challenge. Because for 50 years of communism, there was no underground church. This communist, atheistic dictator declared atheism the religion. 20 years ago, communism falls in Albania. There was no underground church all those years. So we are truly trying to help this first-generation church in Albania understand what church is. It's an amazing concept. I'm like, wow, okay, let me, let me explain this to you. Why is church important? Why does Hebrews say, don't forsake the assembling together as the habit of some? Why is there a command for us to go to church? Because the church is important. It's the bride that Christ is coming back for. Help them understand that. Why is it important to be connected and tied and roped together like that opening illustration? Evangelism, witnessing. This is a godly habit you can help them develop. I love this. In Albania, when we see someone come to faith in Christ, we share the gospel with them. They repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ alone. The very next thing I want to see them do is to immediately go back to their family and their friends and share the gospel. Why? It's not like, okay, I just became a Christian. Now give me a couple years to grow in my maturity and my growth. And then when I'm ready, I'm going to start telling people about Jesus. No. From the moment of their salvation, what do we want them to understand? You have a great privilege to take this truth to your family. And we want them immediately to understand this. And they they get excited about it. In fact, we've seen a whole village in the north of Albania come to faith in Christ. Now, there was only like four families in that village, you know, two on this hill and two on this hill. But they all came to Christ because of one literally little shepherd boy named Benny Bushokai, who was watching some sheep. My good friend David Hossiflick went over there and told him the good news of Jesus Christ. He immediately went back to his family. And within literally a year, that whole village of four families was, became a church in northern Albania. That's what we should see happening. This is a spiritual discipline you want to teach them and instruct them. Not just tell them what it is, but then help them to apply it in their life. How about Christian literature? Is Christian literature important? Now, obviously, we want them to study the Bible first and foremost. I think part of the reason why I'm a missionary in Albania is because when I was on high school staff, I had people at Grace Community Church who said, you need to read Hudson Taylor. You need to read Jim Elliott. You need to read William Carey. I'm like, who? Who and who? Reading these great, the Puritans, changed. It affected who I am. And I believe wholeheartedly that I am overseas today serving 
the Lord with a great privilege in Albania because of them encouraging me to read those biographies and autobiographies. Do we live in a generation where our youth like to read? No. Maybe you do. The rest of your friends don't. What are they? What are, what are they? What are, uh, you, have you ever gone to like McDonald's and seen a whole bunch of kids in there? What are they all doing? Are they talking? No, they're texting, right? Do they read? Yeah, they're texts, <laughs> right? This whole area of reading Christian literature is going to be lost within a generation or two if the church doesn't turn around and say, this is important. This is important for us to teach you what has gone on before. And then service, another godly habit. Sacrificially working to advance the kingdom of God on earth. Why did God give us spiritual gifts, church? Why? According to 1 Corinthians, to what? Edify the body. God gave me spiritual gifts so that I can in turn edify you. This would be a great thing to take a young Christian and walk them through this process. So we must patiently help people to build these godly habits into their lives and then consistently hold them accountable to do them. And our instruction should always be done with love and patience. And again, if we had time, we could look at Titus 2. You can study that on your own. What a great passage about a, a challenge for older men to take the younger men and teach them these truths and help them to apply it. And the same thing, the older women with the younger women. Well, when you spend time with other Christians, what, is, what does that look like? Is it talking about politics? Is it talking about football or baseball? Is it talking about shopping? Do you balance the fun with intentional conversations? Is the love of Christ just flowing out of your heart that when you spend time to one, with one another, and I'm not saying that's all you do, but you balance the fun and the friendship with intentional spiritual conversation? Impartation is the foundation. Instruction is the second effective element that makes discipleship work. In fact, when I used to meet with Jason Drum, uh, he would come to my meetings, and I had an idea of what I wanted to talk about. Every time, just about, we got together, you know what he did? He had a list. Sometimes it was on a receipt. Sometimes it was on a napkin. Sometimes you know, it was on his hand, I think, one time. Uh, he just had questions. And you know what? We would meet probably once a week, right? And he would just say, okay, I'm married, and it's hard. Um, sometimes I feel like Claire doesn't like me very much. And I don't know why, and I don't know how to fix that. Can you help me? And I'd be like, yeah, let's talk about that. And then the next week it'd be like, yeah, so I had this incident at work, and a person asked me this question, and I didn't know the answer. Uh, how, how do I answer them? Uh, let's talk about that. And it was week after week. I never had to come up with questions with Jason because he always came with a list of questions. What did that show me about Jason's heart? He was teachable and hungry. Now, sometimes someone you're discipling may not have that. It may take time for that to develop. But at the very least, maybe you could start with sharing what God's teaching you, right? And that could be a way to instruct, to say, you know what, let me share what I learned this morning in my quiet time and how it's greatly challenging me in this particular area. Maybe that would be a practical suggestion for you 
where it's not like you're teaching them or instructing them. Some of you are like, I've never been to seminary. I've not been trained. No, you know God's word. And as you're studying it and seeking to apply it, you can turn around and teach it with someone else. Impartation and instruction. Thirdly, inspiration. A third element is inspiration. Turn with me to Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Don't worry, we're going to pick up the pace here. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Hebrews 10, verse 24 says this, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider... This carries the idea of before I even meet with someone, before I even go to have a coffee in Starbucks with some kind of girly foo-foo drink that Jason Drum just ordered. (laughs) I I like my coffee strong and black, right, men? Yeah. You with me? You got my back or what? We'll talk later. (laughs) Before I go have coffee with my friend Jason Drum, what is this verse telling me to do? Consider how to do what? Encourage him, to stimulate him, to motivate, to prod him to what? Something very specific. Be a good Christian. Is that what it says? No, it says what? Love and what? And good deeds, good works. Because good works without love is what? Or it has a tendency to be what? Pharisaical, external, outward obedience. But the love of Christ motivates us to do those good works. Not because good works save us, but good works are what? The result of true salvation. We understand that. So I'm considering, based on Jason Drum, based on where he's at, based on his marriage, based on how many years he's been a Christian, based on some of our past conversations and the questions I've asked him, I am considering what is something that Jason needs help with. And I'm thinking and praying about that before I even have coffee with him to say, how can I encourage him, not just with my words, not just with what I share or what I teach or instruct, but even in my example, how can I encourage Jason Drum to love Christ more, to love in good deeds? Did you get that? That's really what this verse is saying. That is what inspiration is all about. Encouraging one another to be more like Christ stimulating, motivating someone to do something. Now, what do we normally call this? Motivating for the sake of accountability, right? You're holding someone accountable. What is accountability? You're like, I don't like that word. Accountability is simply requiring someone to give an account to verify that they do what they say. For example, let's say a business borrows money from a bank. Okay, this business has just taken a loan. They borrowed money from a bank. The bank will send an auditor The job of an auditor is to go into that business and say, okay, we gave you this much money on your loan application. You said you were going to use the money for this. Are you using it for that? Verify that they're doing with the money what they promised. Well, in the same way, in a discipleship relationship, a discipler requires a person to account for the truth that he or she has received. Is the Christian living out the truth that he or she knows? Parents, what a great opportunity. Sunday, today. You go to lunch, and you sit down with your kids, and you say, kids, do you understand what hell is? Yeah, mom, I do. I was listening. I took notes. Here's my picture. Flames, torment. I mean, it was vivid, wasn't it? 
And so it's my job as a parent to make sure that my children not only understand the message that they heard, but what? To let it soak in to their heart, to help them apply it, to inspire and motivate them, to hold them accountable that they not only hear a Sunday morning sermon, but they do what with it? They apply it. They live it out. Now, how do you apply a message on hell? Help me out here. Repent. Some, some need to repent. How else can you apply a message? How can you motivate someone to apply a message on hell? Gratitude. Be thankful. Man, I am so grateful that God sent Jesus so that I don't have to go there. What's another way? What's that? Proclaim it. Because you don't want your friends and family to go there. These are just ways that we can inspire and motivate people to be accountable with the truth that they've received. This is a huge element of discipleship, to be accountable. The best way to hold them accountable is to ask them tough questions. Jesus did this in Mark eight twenty nine to his disciples. He said, who do you say that I am? I know what other people are saying. Who do you say that I am? He's, he's essentially asking them, do you believe I'm the Messiah? Are you going to follow me as the Messiah? And to Simon Peter in John 21 Verses 15 to 17, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? How many times did he ask Simon Peter that? Three times. And remember, when did this happen? Jesus has already died, buried, rose again. Peter has already done what? Rejected Christ three times. Is this a tough question? Yeah, in fact, the text says Simon Peter was grieved at the third time Jesus asked him that. And then what does Jesus say to him? Tend my sheep. What was Jesus asking the question for? Commitment. Are you committed? Did Jesus know what was coming for Simon Peter? Absolutely. I believe so. Did Simon Peter know? No. So what did Jesus do with this question? Drew out Okay, I've taught you. I've lived it. I've modeled it for you. Are you going to be committed to do it? We have to good, ask good questions, not just yes, no questions. How is your quiet time? Good. Are you growing? Yes. Are you being victorious over sin? Yes. Okay, great. Let's close in prayer. Hey, how about those Mets? How about those Dodgers? Is that discipleship? Kind of, but not how deep is it? <laughs> And so you ask questions. How is your struggle with purity? Men, married men, are you being a one-woman man in your mind? What are you struggling with? How can I pray for you? Ladies, are you being submissive to your husbands? Kids, how's your attitude with your parents? If I had your mom in here, how would she say you've acted this last week? You know, those aren't yes-no questions, are they? You guys are kind of uncomfortable just me saying it, right? Now, would you start off in a relationship the very first day with those kind of questions? Hey, how's your struggle with lust? I don't think I want to meet with you anymore. (laughs) You make me awkward, please don't contact me. But maybe over time, as you are imparting truth, building a relationship, and as this level of instruction begins to grow, you begin to see how they build on one another. So maybe for some it'd be three months, maybe six months. For this pastor in Albania that I've been meeting with, it took five to six years before he was ready to start talking about some of these things. You can't force it. Why? You and I are not the Holy Spirit. 
So don't try to be. Let God's word be God's word and let the spirit be the spirit. But that doesn't mean you can't, with wisdom and discernment and grace, sense when it's appropriate to ask these questions. So the fourth effective element is imitation. 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul simply says, follow me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Mimic me. This is a key element of discipleship. Paul knew nothing halts discipleship more than hypocrisy. Isn't that true? In fact, I think more of our children grow up in the church, turn away from the Lord, because they see a mom and a dad who say one thing on Sunday morning and say one thing in front of their friends, and throughout the week they see something totally different lived out. I'm convinced of it. And so they go, well, if my mom and dad, Jesus is only important on Sundays, but not for the rest of the week, why would Jesus be important to me? That's convicting, isn't it, parents? They are always watching us. We're always being an example, aren't we? Always. It's either a good example or it's a bad one. But they are always watching. Paul said, follow me as I follow who? It wasn't enough just to follow a person. The goal of discipleship is not about being like Jason Drum or Pastor Hernandez. What is the goal? The goal is to be like Christ. So as you are discipling others, remind them of that. It's not about being like me or parenting necessarily with my style or my... It's about being like Christ. But again, we have to have a good example. People will learn far more from watching us live than by listening to us talk. So you teach a young believer what prayer is. And then you go to the park with them and you pray. You share the gospel with someone you're discipling. You confess struggles together like it says in James 5.16. You maintain a level of accountability with one another. The guys that I meet with in Albania, I say, you need to be asking me these same questions. That's how they learn how to do discipleship. I encourage them. And you know what? For the first six months, they don't ask me anything. I'm always asking them questions. And I keep reminding them, how come you're not asking me? How come you're not asking me how my marriage is doing? How come you're not asking me how my, what I'm learning in my quiet times? How come you're not asking me what verses I'm memorizing? Accountability goes both ways, doesn't it? In fact, every pastor that I know who has personally fallen out of ministry has told me it happened two things. Number one, I stopped spending time in the Word. I got busy in ministry. And number two, I had no accountability. Nobody knew what I was struggling with. I don't know about you, that terrifies me. Because be careful or lest you too would fall, right? And we know our sin will find us out. Accountability goes both ways. We have to be willing to be transparent and vulnerable with those we disciple. And in fact, oftentimes they're going to learn just as much from our failures as much as from our victories. Well, and then fifthly, intercession. We've looked at impartation, instruction, inspiration, imitation, and then fifthly, intercession, prayer. Both Jesus and Paul, John 17 and Colossians 1, faithfully and fervently prayed for their disciples. They didn't pray these superficial, be blessed, may God be with you, prayers pansy prayers they prayed for their people and they didn't just talk to god about their people and certainly we need to do that but what else did they do they prayed with their people remember what happened jesus said don't pray like that pray like this and then what did he do he prayed with them john dirks was a guy who discipled me when i was in high school and college 
John Dirks taught me what prayer was all about. He lived in Silmar, had a condo there. In fact, he was rooming with Rick Holland. Some of you know Rick Holland. So I would go over to Rick and John's apartment, and John would, we'd play tennis because we'd always had to do something athletic and have fun and, you know, mock each other, part of male bonding. And then we'd get done playing tennis, and then he'd say, hey, let's, let's go take a walk. And we'd go walk up in the hills of Silmar, and we would pray. Three miles, 45 minutes. Why did we go on a walk? Because if we had prayed for 45 minutes in the living room, he or I or both of us would be dead asleep on the middle of his living room floor. Rick Holland would come in and say, hey, wake up, what are you guys doing? So we'd go for a walk. And I can just remember, even today, as, as a, a freshman in college, walking and just praying and looking at the beauty and then sitting there and looking out over Silmar and whatever part of L.A. you could see through the, the smog and just catching a heart that John Dirks had to pray and commune with his father. You know, I learned more about prayer by praying with John Dirks than all the sermons on prayer I ever heard. And so when I'm teaching these Albanian pastors about prayer, I just want to go into the park and pray with them. And I just got to the point after seven years where I can actually pray in Albanian. It took me a little bit longer than I expected. Are you praying with people? Or is prayer only something that happens before meals and on Sundays and at the occasional prayer meeting that you have here at the church? Prayer is one of those things we love to talk about. We love to teach on it. We love to get excited about it. But do we do it? And I am first and foremost confessing that I don't. That this is a huge part of disciple-making, intercession. Are you praying together? Are you helping one another learn to love, to commune with God through prayer? We must pray. Well, five basic elements of discipleship. And again, I apologize for rushing through these so quickly. Impartation. Instruction, inspiration, imitation, and intercession. We don't have to climb the mountain of life in our Christian life alone. God gave us the church. The best way to ensure that we will continue to grow and mature is to stay tied together, roped together with other Christians. And if we practice these five elements of discipleship, the word of God has promised us that the Lord will deepen our relationships with one another. Help us to grow to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning and for the opportunity for us to just take a moment to pause and consider what it means to disciple. Help us to understand your word and these elements of discipleship. Help us to practice them consistently. Lord God, I pray that you would give us a passion to see this next generation raised up to love and adore you. And that we would take our responsibility seriously as the church to help one another, to consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to impart truth through relationship, to instruct not just for the sake of knowing, but so that we would understand and apply it, to provide godly examples, to pray with one another. Heavenly Father, we know that we can do it only because of your strength and your power and ultimately only because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And so we stand amazed at your grace this morning. We love you and we thank you. Help these brothers and sisters to be disciple-making disciplers. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.